0: Ere 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 I d I da Shalom Shalom wonderful friends. I'm so happy to see you. I am in uh New York City today. Um it's been a wild day already. I I gave um, a keynote address at the Repair of the World Conference, was very meaningful, next to Pittsburgh Steeler, Zach Banner, um, who's been an ally to the Jews. And then I just taught at a Jewish high school about organ donation. And now I'm in a rabbinical school in the Bronx where I just did a, a class on, well, for rabbinical students. And But this has been the highlight. I said, I will not be late for this because these are my people. These are my people who I spend uh, my time with each week. And so, although this is my fourth uh, session of the day, um, this is uh, by far the one I've been most excited for. And I don't say that to everybody. (laughs) Um, And so thank you for being here. And um, I really, uh, this is a very happy place for me where everybody should always feel safe to share their views and um, process their thinking in a space that's, strives to be inclusive and welcoming and pluralistic. And um, it's not about the philosophers. As I've said, none of this is about which philosopher we like or don't like. I mean, that's all interesting. This is about our connection together. This is about our own growth in, um, um, in our own life purpose and having more moral tools to figure out how we can be more of service to others. And this is about community and about um, um, about thinking about the world's challenges and life's challenges and how we can bring more kindness into the world um, and understanding. So with that, um, we're at session 24. Actually, next uh, in a week or two, we might go backwards to someone I want to include who we already passed in the timeline, but that's OK. Um, but today is William James. Before we get to William James, let's do a little poll to see what people think about this question. What about Jewish experiences speaks to you most? Or if if Jewish isn't the right word, say religious or cultural, what about these experiences speak to you the most? The values, experiences that inspire me, human connection. What about Jewish experiences or put in your own um, religion or word there, speaks to you most. Is it the values? Is it experiences that inspire you? Is it um, human connection? Ah, very interesting. 50% say human connection. 25% say the values. 25% say experiences that inspire them. So that's a good segue into into James. And part of what he's going to do um, in a revolutionary kind of way, although very different than the revolutions of Marx, is help us to think about the world of experience. How do we learn about the world? Is it by reading concepts in a book or by experiencing things concretely in real life, so to speak? How wise is it really to be agnostic or undecided in life? This week, we return back to America. It was like back to the future. Return back to America with the New York-born godson of Ralph Waldo Emerson. William James, one of the founders of the philosophy of pragmatism. Pragmatism is a philosophical tradition that very broadly understands knowing the world as inseparable from agency within it. Knowing the world is inseparable from our agency within the world itself. For James, we gain knowledge not by observing, but by doing. He cares not about abstract theories as much as which ideas are useful in understanding the world. The Greeks would be like rolling in their graves, right, to think of truth like that. And one assesses whether an idea is true based on how useful it is for them. So take God. Is God true? Is it true there's a God? Well, James would say, who knows, right? But the question is, does the idea of God Serve me, right? Is it a useful idea in me being a good person in the world or not? And that will tell me whether it's true or not. So too, um, on many other issues. It's true if it's useful, he argues. As a child, James spent several years in Europe. He later went to Harvard Medical School, but he became ill and depressed and never practiced medicine, though he did eventually graduate and teach physiology at Harvard. Most notably, in addition to being a philosopher, James was a pioneering early psychologist. He penned a tome called The Principles of Psychology, in which he developed an approach that came to be called functionalist. According to the American Psychological Association Dictionary of Psychology, functionalism is a general psychological approach that views mental life and behavior in terms of active adaptation to environmental challenges and opportunities. According to James, people have a psychological need to hold certain beliefs, particularly religious ones. It's not about whether Taoism or Hinduism or Christianity is true. It's about our psychological needs to attach to certain communities and truths. So James, even though we don't have the tools to prove the existence of God, the notion of God can be seen as true because it's helpful for a person to hold such a belief as it can enable one to overcome their fear of death and potentially live a more meaningful life or fulfilling life for some people. Prior to James, it was commonly held that the mind was a largely static structure that could be examined, right? My mind isn't changing. Let's just observe that mind in a non-changing form. James, James, however, argued That one's mind is an ever evolving status, constantly influenced by new experiences. This is another move away from theoretical, ideological assumptions about humans. The same way in philosophy, James didn't want external truths, but useful truths. So too in psychology, James didn't seek unchanging, objective understandings of the human mind, but rather, useful observations. The mind doesn't just process reality. It also serves one's deeper human needs. For James, reality is constantly changing, and our observance of anything changes our analysis of it when it enters the realm of experience. James was a relativist, which is to say he understood that different things work for different people. What you need in your life is different from what I need in my life. In this sense, he was influenced by Darwin, believing that the strongest ideas, just like the strongest organisms, are the ones to survive, right? Humans evolve and the strongest will prevail, so too in the realm of ideas. The strongest ideas, the ones that last, are the ones that last for a reason. And what makes an idea fit for survival is its utility to humans. If ideas are fulfilling human needs, they will survive. Why has Christianity survived 2,000 years? Well, a little less than that. Um, But it's because it fulfills a need that humans have. James's pragmatism follows in the tradition of the earlier empiricists, which he used to develop his approach called radical empiricism. In radical empiricism, per the APA, Dictionary of Psychology, reality consists not of subject and object, mind and matter, but of pure experience. We exist in the realm of experience. And so regarding religion, James held that much more important than the objectivity of a religion's truth claims is a person's experience with religion right? Just to flesh that out. The question is not, did Jesus Christ die for my our sins? The question is not, did Moses split the sea and receive a 10 commandments? The question is not, is there a God and did God tell us something? The question is, the experiences I have within a religious community, the, the experiences I have with religious language, do they are they useful to me in my life? James believed that experience precedes our emotional label, labeling of it. I experience it, and afterwards I, I give an emotional label. He used the example that it's not the case that a person sees a bear, then they feel afraid, and then they run, see the bear, feel fear, and then run. Rather, a person sees a bear and runs instinctively, the feeling of be afraid, being afraid sinks in only after for James. In, the th- in his thinking, a physiological stimulus produces an experience and a response, but our emotions and conscious analyses emerge later. Someone hits us, so we hit back. Someone hits us, so we run away. We react to a stimulus, and the emotional processing comes after. I think this may also be the case with how most people experience religion. We observe and feel something deeply before we have a chance to emotionally and thoughtfully react to it. James's 1897 essay, The Will to Believe, is anomalous in that it's a philosophical essay that is also rooted in personal experience about how he overcame a deep sadness and depression through religious experience. For James and his pragmatism, though it is not enough to simply follow one's instinctive feelings, one must make up their mind about big ideas. For an idea to be useful, a person cannot sit on the fence about it. In cases where there are limits to the evidence, a true empiricist, according to James, can transcend the limitations of the evidence and live with the integrity to make a choice that aligns with the integrity of one's life. We can apply all of this to the claims of traditional Judaism. Do we know through objective study that the Torah is true or that there is a God? No, of course not. But we do know that Judaism and mitzvot have been a meaningful structure that have served the Jewish people for thousands of years. And an additional benefit in Judaism is that one can follow mitzvot and traditions of their people without being sure about the truth claims at all. And perhaps even a religious experience will follow. I may not know if there's a God. I may not know if these mitzvot emerge from truth. But I can have a religious experience, a deep spiritual experience through mitzvot. Similarly, do we have free will as human beings? We know we can't in our lifetimes come to an objective answer about that. But staying undecided for James is counterproductive. In the philosophy of James, by committing to believing something, you make it more true. Consequently, if I commit to free will being true, I will act with more freedom and live a better life. So he says, don't just be in a state of paralysis, intellectual paralysis. Are humans free? Are humans not free? I don't know. Who knows? He says, no. Come to a conclusion. And if you conclude, for example, that we are free, you will gain more freedom. Come to a conclusion about God. Of course, we don't know. But by coming to a conclusion, you can lean in. You can lean in and and have an idea that can, can be useful that if we're just in a state of disbelief or or lack of belief in anything, we don't have those vehicles necessarily for transformation that come with the will to believe. This adds a more practical meaning to how Yiddish writer Isaac Bashevis Singer humorlessly, humorlessly put it, we have to believe in free will, we've got no choice. Virtually all James's ideas have relevance to how one might live A religious or cultural life. But how can we use them to illuminate specific teachings from the Torah? Personally, I'm struck by James's notion that experience precedes comprehension and how it relates to the Israelites receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. Here's what it says in Sefer Shmot, the book of Exodus. (inaudible) Then Moshe took the record of the covenant and read it aloud to the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will faithfully do. We will do it, and then we will understand it. We will experience, and then we will comprehend. However, if one takes fewer liberties in trans- translating the Hebrew, nasa means more, literally, we shall do and we shall hear. And as Jews, we pay careful attention to the, wo- to the word order. First we do, then we hear. We learn from this that we often don't understand the significance of the mitzvot we do until after we've done them. You don't understand what it's like to be a parent until you parent. You don't know what it's like to be a doctor until you serve as a doctor, even if you've gone through medical school. In accordance with James's advice, one must decide on how to live and live that way before coming to any grasp of the truth that might be found in a particular way of life. It's taught that when we received Torah at Mount Sinai, God held the mountain over our heads in effect, forcing us to accept Torah. The tradition teaches that it was not until the end of the Purim story that the Jews accepted the Torah through their own understanding. It says, ki mu We read in Megillah to Esther, the book of Esther, which I'm reading with my daughter now and and enjoying that very much with her because it's a great feminist uh, critique. In view, then all of the instructions in the said letter and of what they had experienced in in that matter and what had befallen them The Jews undertook and irrevocably obligated themselves and their descendants and all who might join them to observe these two days in the manner prescribed and at the proper time each year. The Renaissance-era Italian commentator Rabbi Avadia ben Yaakov Sforno, known as the Sforno, argued that the laws of Kashrut were given because of the sin of the golden calf. What? Keep kosher because of the golden calf? These stipulations weren't part of the original plan, but were revealed later to reconcile the divine human relationship after another colossal human failure. He concluded that this was a concession to meet them where they were. The people needed not just the abstract teachings of Torah, but tangible religious experiences that would help them internalize God's teaching in their lives. Right, So God said, hey, I don't have flesh, serve me, and that didn't work. The people wanted an object to serve, so they built a golden calf. So God said, ah, the people want experiences, not just abstract truth. So let's give them more experiences. Even today, though, through things like lighting Hanukkah candles, hosting a Passover Seder, fasting on Yom Kippur, whatever it is, we're implicitly recognizing that education in the classroom is not enough. We need practices to make this life real. We do, and then we understand. So too, the Hasidic tradition teaches that while Torah learning has its place, we must also put a premium on experience through our own senses. Rabbi Miriam Klutz writes, this practice is known as avodah be-gashmiut, literally worship through corporeality, a term from Hasidic spirituality that refers to the awakening of spiritual life through somatic experience. Avodah traditionally referred to religious actions like prayer or the performance of mitzvot, but the Hasidic masters expanded it to include actions such as eating, dancing, or sex. Through prayerful dedication, the practice of Gashmi, physical service, can integrate the spiritual and physical domains into one whole. And so, friends, to conclude, at first glance, there might seem to be some flimsiness to James's notion that what really matters is a person's experience. Where is the place for objective reality? Where is the quest for truth? But I think we all know from our own lives That while measurable facts are certainly useful, the unquantifiable experiences are what brings us to something higher and deeper. So with that, dear friends, I would love to open our conversation together.
1: Hi, Gary. How's New York?
0: (laughs) New York is a crazy place. Um, But I'll share one thing that happened yesterday. Uh, Some of you are on social media. Some of you are not. And here's something that um, I shared on social media that happened to me yesterday. I chose to use Lyft instead of Uber because of many claims of anti-Semitism in Uber recently. Um, Jews have felt unsafe in Ubers in many cases. And um, I, I I got in the Lyft, and within a few seconds, the Lyft driver said to me, "Shmuly, is that a is that a Jewish name?" And I was a little afraid, and I said, um, "Yes, yes, it is a Jewish name." And I saw his name and I looked at his face and I said, your name, it's hard to pronounce. uh, uh, um, Is that a Muslim name? And he said, yes, it is. And then there was a pause. And he said, I live in Brooklyn and some of my best friends are Israelis. And I I go to their house for Shabbat and I love it. Those conflicts over there don't divide us over here. And um, he said, New York City is an interesting place where we can build bridges. And so, um, that is having lived in New York many years and being back here frequently. Um, one of my experiences as well, the great project of America, as many challenges as we have here, um, and as much hate as there is on the rise remains this incredible melting pot of Asians and and Latin Americans and Jews and Muslims and people of color and, And um, this great opportunity for us to figure out how to model for the world, how we can come together across racial and ideological and ethnic backgrounds and learn to live together. And so that is one of the many experiences I've had in New York over the last 24 hours. So thank you for asking, Gary. (laughs) It's also a little colder here.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's in the 80s here. You're missing out. (laughs) uh good morning everybody. Uh, the first thing that struck me uh is kind of how you finished up uh about exper- uh, experiences uh, you know you do and then you listen. uh it, it struck me that the uh, uh, the genius of of Judaism, uh however it got put together, you know, with with the Kohanim and the Levites and the Israelites. Uh, uh, it struck me because they formed three various different groups, one who was the priests, the other one were the teachers, and then you have the rest of the masses that really may not have understood the pure spiritual aspect of it, but surely everybody could understand the doing and then possibly lead to, different experiences that that held that held him together and, and things that needed to be done in a community and I, I've said that for a long time. I think it's it was a genius so whoever however it got devised however you think it may have been devised and uh, and I happen to uh, agree actually uh, with James. this is the first time that I really say wow I that's I'm on that line. Because that's kind of kind of where I where I I think the second thing I wanted to say, and it's an offshoot. You don't have to answer it, but I just I, I I've been obviously very bothered with the whole Israeli thing that that that's that's going on and all the horrible things they're saying about Judaism and you know never in my life have I ever really realized that you know the whole world hates Jews as as generically not everybody but uh, everything that we 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 hear going on. And, uh, and it's been gone, I think, well, ever since Abraham, there's always been uh, detractors, uh, against Judaism. And I just, maybe it's the, uh, the burden that God has given Jews, uh, to always have to deal with evil. Cause there's always evil in the world, There'll always be evil in the world. Uh, and that, that, that's a burden that God has given us to, to see the light and to show the people of the world to be the light, you know, the orgaim, uh, uh, to justice and good mm-hmm. rather than bad and so I you don't have to answer that. I I just had to get that off my chest. Okay. so
0: thank you <laughs> thank you so good a, a few responses um uh, uh with Gary and then I want to respond to Steve on the on the chat and then I see Eileen's got a hand up and there are not many safe places in the world to share views these days, but I hope people do feel free here wh- wherever you fall out um, you know, on these issues that we want to be a space where people can think and feel. So to go to your first point before you're more loaded, second one, um, yeah, it, it's such an interesting thing if you think of the of the Kohanim and the Leviim and the Yisrael and the different roles that the priestly group had and the general Jews had. And then you look at history and how immigrants are often pushed into certain trades. You know, they get stereotyped as, oh, the Asians are good at that and the Jews are good at that and the Muslims are and and the the Mexicans are good at that. And because that's the trade you get pushed into for various reasons. And so you get boxed in into certain roles in society. And when you come out of the ghetto, you get to choose what you want to do. Come out of the ghetto, you're not a a black slave anymore or you're not just a Jewish immigrant in Brooklyn. Right. Um, Or you're not just, um, you know, an Asian American who is working dry cleaning or a Mexican who's doing landscaping or a Jew who's repairing shoes. You actually are choosing your your trade in life. And what, an, what a great actualization of freedom um, when we can choose those roles and opportunities. And so, too, in Jewish life, that um, when we're not just pushed into a tribe or pushed into a certain, um, you know, caste, so to speak, um, but are able to choose the experiences we want and also don't just attend a synagogue because we feel we must or be in a denomination because we feel we must, but choose, feel empowered to choose the Judaism that we want and not the part we don't want, right? As you and I were talking about Gary recently, that the parts that aren't working for us, we don't need to go there, right? Um, That's on the first point. On the second point, the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just so sad and so painful and having seen the highest number of Jews killed in a day since the Holocaust and that massacre and the number of people who call themselves humanitarians, who actually had nothing generous to say to Jewish communities after Hamas engaged in such a horrific act of terror, killing over 1,400 people, injuring thousands, um, taking over 200 hostages, including babies and, and elderly people, uh, um, beheading children. And then conveniently, a few days later, had a whole lot of humanitarian things to say when they had nothing to say on that day, I find to be so sickening and sad and sad and um, that if if one is a humanitarian for all people and they want to speak up for innocent civilians in Gaza and innocent Israelis, that's beautiful. And those who are selective and only see the humanity in one, in one group, how sad that reality is, in my view. And um, unfortunately, Jews have found that major segments of the left are just not with us. We've always known the far right to be a, a scary place of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, but um, many were kind of naive to the fact that oh the liberal establishments or progressive camps are with us because hey we're in favor of 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 many of these causes and we're in allyship and and 80 percent of Jews are going to vote you know this way and so clearly that support will be there but then actually finding progressive organizations too many to even count that literally celebrated Hamas's act as an act of 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 noble resistance that that terror. Is now a progressive value um, of what it means to be in um, in resistance, and 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 there are very smart people in those camps, and that's a very different conversation. But the type of reductivist that only has one tool, a hammer, and every problem is a nail, right? Um, you know, is, is is here's an example. If the only evil you know is called white supremacy, if the only evil you know is called colonialism then every problem in the world, every evil, has to fit into that little box. And when it doesn't fit, you smack that label on it anyways, because that's the only evil you know. And so now you say, oh, I get it. The Israel, Israel, Israel is powerful, and Gaza looks pretty weak. So the powerful is the colonialists, right? Even though half the Jews are Jews of color, right? They're Sephardic Jews or, you know, over there. They're from the Middle East. They were expelled from Arab countries but it's very convenient to call them white colonists, even though Jews were living there for thousands of years. And it so happens that now, you know, everyone in Gaza are the people of color. And so if that's the lens that we have to see, then all of a sudden, like anything you can do to dismantle the colonialists, which makes no sense. Colonialist implies you have another homeland and in your other homeland, you've now taken over this other homeland. Well, well, Jews have no other homeland. (laughs) So where's the, the colonialist, uh, you know, model doesn't even make any sense when there is no other homeland that you're, if you have Britain, and now you you have other countries you're trying to take over in your colonialist enterprise. Makes sense, right? But if you've been there for thousands of years and you expand your presence because of a Holocaust and because you've been expelled from countless Arab countries, and you're also, you know, roughly half Jews of color, the models just don't work. But nobody, nobody in those camps is interested in the models not working, but they're interested in being on a bandwagon. And so that's very sad and lonely um, for those who thought there would be more support. Of course, saying that does not mean that anything the Israeli uh, government does has a carte blanche. Um, but anyways, I have so much to say on this, but you didn't come here for that. And so if folks wanna share something different or argue against something I said, um, you're welcome to do that. And, um, and maybe we'll circle back to this, maybe we won't. But let me go to Steve's comment on the side, and then we'll go to Eileen and then to Arnie. And um, so to Steve's great point here around religious experience, what does it look like to have Jewish experience that is not God-centered? And I think the opportunity is so rich, so rich. I think that the, the vote, the musar, the Jewish learning, that the whole, all the vehicles for one who does not put God at the center are available for rich spiritual experience, for human connection, for moral connection, for spiritual actualization, whether one is an atheist or an agnostic um, or something in between or beyond um, or just confused, um, that the opportunity in Judaism to provide rich spiritual experiences are there. Of course, if one is God-centered, those mitzvot can also be actualized in that approach. Or it could be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But I'm so glad you asked that. Because um, um, the spectrum of belief in Jewish theology is so rich and so diverse. And I hope that that's part of what Valley Beit Madrash is stru- is trying to give a platform to that whether you're Hasidic or Orthodox or Reform or Conservative, atheist or a believer, Jew or Gentile, that engaging in this learning together, the celebration of life, that are rolling up our sleeves in social action our desire to grow our character, become better human beings and be of more service to each other, that whatever those theological beliefs should not divide us, um, but should be, um, um, add add more richness to the diversity of our community. So thank you so much for that, Steve. And over to you, Eileen.
2: I had a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. Is this Henry James, the same Henry James who wrote novels at the turn of the century?
0: Um, so this is William James.
2: Oh, that's um, his brother
0: then. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, um, you can educate me on that because I don't know who, I actually don't know that Henry James. I've heard the name, but I, I couldn't say anything he, else.
2: He wrote novels um, about the American experience. Okay. And okay. he worked with the New York Society in showing that even though "quote unquote" they had everything, they were the golden bowl. They were pretty on the outside, empty on the inside.
0: Okay, okay, very interesting. So it sounds like it's my own intellectual impoverishment that I haven't read him, uh, but I have to also confess that I was not interested in any books until I got the until I got to halfway through college. I spent the first twenty years of my life. Um, just trying to, you know, get by on tests without having to to read as little as possible. And then all of a sudden, all I wanted to do was read books. And I feel very, you know, sad about those lost years. So it's very possible I read Henry James and had no idea what I was reading. But (laughs) Um, (laughs) but thank you.
2: The second thing is, there was a publication, which I think just came out today of a study in which one of our science, psychological researcher says, there is no such thing as free will.
0: So is there there, there a question or is it just a comment?
2: Um, That's basically a comment after what was said to have at the same time, this book based upon research, which says we do not have free will. now. I haven't had time to even look at the book cuz it's brand new but I did hear a discussion about it so it sounds interesting. Good.
0: Right. I suspect free will is going to come up again in our in this series together. Yeah. Um and the range of complex views especially as neuroscience becomes a partner in thinking about these questions um, in recent decades. Yep. And um and the complexities of behavioral psychology and understanding why are humans doing what they're doing and how predictable is that behavior? And it turns out um, that humans are remarkably predictable. And it turns out that a whole bunch of people are getting rich off that predictability, um, knowing what we will what we will say and what we will buy and what we will do, um, and how people are able to capitalize on that. And, and I'll give you one example. Just like we wouldn't open our mouth to a stranger and allow them to put whatever food they want in our mouths, we'd wanna know what it is. Many of us are doing that with the media. The media is just spoon feeding truth into our mouths. And many people take the media to be a source of just absolute truth. I read stuff in the news and um, forget even whether the facts are true. The constant bias and slants that are that are a part of a for-profit industry, a part of the capitalistic enterprise that views media as a profit-making machine. It is not a part of the truth-seeking machine. I mean, there are people who are honest that work in media, of course, right? But to understand that people are profiting based on what our minds want to hear and don't want to hear. Um, and um, anyways, okay, thank you, Eileen. Let's go to, yes, please, See
2: what we want to see. And exactly. See what we want to believe, and this reinforces it.
0: Exactly, exactly. And to always ask ourselves when the media pops up, why am I being shown this? Right? Forget even the forget even the liberal converse conservative thing. Oh, liberal news is saying this, conservative news is saying this. How can I get different perspectives? That's one thing. But then even within, like, why are they showing me this? Why are they telling me this? Like what is what what is, you know, and and how can I and 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 how can I not make sure they're controlling me, but what is it triggering for me? What is happening in my inner life when that media shows me that? And how can I regain my freedom in response to it? That it's not just us being in a in a rat race, in a machine of media pushing us narratives that push humans to think the same way, as opposed to finding our freedom by breaking out of the media. Yes, Arnie. By the way, I looked it
3: up and William James and Henry James were brothers.
0: Right. Extreme relativism is terrifying to me because, well, relativism when it applies to just the individual is fine. Uh, But when it starts impacting other people, it can be very dangerous because a person can can go through a logical trail that allows them to do terrible things. Like you can say, I don't like these peoples and they should not exist. And that is useful to me. So it should happen. And you were alluding to that when you talked about absolute truths. Is there any limit in William James as far as his relativism? That is a great question. And I wish I knew enough to answer that. And I don't. Um, I don't know what limits James would put on that. It's just, um, and but, but I think your concern is a very important one. Because all of us here are on some level relativists and on some level reject um, the extremes of relativism, I'm sure. Uh, and I'm sure we navigate that tension differently to state where we're all relativists. We all understand that people are fundamentally different. And because of those differences, our moral claims will be different um, based on how we're situated. And um, I'll give an example where that might make us uncomfortable and where that might make us um, more comfortable. But I'm going to make some assumptions. Um, For example, I imagine most of us are opposed to female genital cutting, or female genital mutilation, as some people call it, depending on who's, who's speaking. And our opposition would would sound something like this. I believe in women's rights. I believe in girls' rights. I think that women have the right to sexual pleasure. I reject a tribal religious understanding that says it's immodest for women to have sexual pleasure and to cut the clitoris of girls. Um, that's what a human rights person might say, right? That um, in the name of modesty, we think hurting girls, not to mention the high numbers of girls that die from such a practice, we think that's a human rights violation. That's what a human rights activist or advocate might say. What a hard relativist would say is, who do you think you are? You Westerner coming to my tribal land and telling us that what we're doing is wrong. Who do you think you are? My tribe has been doing this for millennia. And you're going to come over here and tell us that you think it's barbaric. Right? So the relativist says, they're right. We have no moral claim to make. That's their tribe. And they can do how they please. Doesn't matter what you think about women's rights. Doesn't matter what you you think about the girls dying. Right? What matters is that they have the right to their relativistic moral approach. And we should honor that. So that's an approach that comes up often as a tension here's a case where we might feel differently about it. Now, I, I in no way want to compare circumcision of, ma- of males to female genital cutting. I think they're completely different, but there are some fringe left activists that are on a war against Brit Mila, that are on a war against circumcision to say the Jews are barbaric. They're engaging in genital mutilation and we should actively stop them. Now, Is their claim absurd? No, their claim makes sense. It's a baby, the baby doesn't have freedom, doesn't have agency. Why are you cutting off the foreskin of the penis of this boy without their choice to do that? Let them become an adult and choose. That doesn't sound like an absurd moral argument, right? Um, But as Jews, we might say, well, forgetting the morally robust arguments, we might say, look, leave us alone. We're a religious minority. We've been doing this for thousands of years. How hurt is that baby boy? Let us do what we want, right? And so there, we might take a little bit of a relativistic claim of saying, as a minority group, you don't understand us, leave us alone. And then we get to Arnie's point over there around useful truths that are actually terrifying truths. People who have oppressed other people um, and can conveniently argue that that serves them. Well, American society can't operate if we don't have slaves, American society would collapse without slavery. You're going to collapse our economy? Do you know how morally bad that would be for the world? America is becoming a growing light in the world. And if our economy collapses, right, that's going to be bad for the world and people are going to die. Slavery, ah, that doesn't look so good, right? But we need it to achieve this higher ends, right? It's a useful truth that black people are just going to serve white people because it's going to serve the world for us to build this empire right um nazis arguments of useful truths once again in a darwinian fashion that it's good for the world to rid the world of jews right um th- you know that that's going to be very good for the advancement of our race and on and on and on and on around how um how dangerous this can be so anyways, we're, we're we're all over the place right now, <laughs> and we're in very controversial and touchy subjects. But Arnie, I'm so glad you said that. Okay, let's go to Agalaya, and then we'll open it up for others.
4: Okay, so I'm going to preface this by, are you sure you want me to say what I really want to say right now?
0: <laughs> uh, Agalaya, that is one of your three most common openers. Um, <laughs> yes, we we always are here and ready to hear you. <laughs>
4: Okay so my usual answer to people saying well the baby doesn't have a choice and whether or not they're circumcised and everything um my answer to that is did i choose the color of my skin okay so first of all that's you know kind of like yeah it, it, it's not exactly a trigger but i have a kind of snarky response to that you know for Things, But also the other thing that is that this um, whole um, discussion today, I'm not that familiar with um, William James, though, like, um, but this discussion reminds me of like a class that I took when I was, you know, first in my PhD program and everything. And well, to tell you the truth, though, um, what I said in class is not something that I can actually say before feel fortunate that you have not heard me use certain words before You're your know, longest stretch when people have not heard me use profanity before but the thing was is that um, we were talking and about well do humans have free will do humans not have free will and everything so I said well if we have absolutely no free will why not say and go home just give up okay so anyway though I'm not exactly sure that this went over so well with a lot of people you know and I didn't say but, you know, anyway, the the point is, is that um, sometimes I wonder, though, now my own ideas on free will are kind of mercurial. Like, say, for instance, did I actually choose a lot of the things that happened to me? Well, one, should my parents have given, like, basically conceived me at all, knowing that I was going to grow up, you know, having a certain skin color? You know, I mean, I'm just saying. But at the same time, though, like, so no, there are a lot of things that I didn't have any control over but at the same time though like was it i mean did i you know like have these you know like things presented to me you know when it comes to yes people are predictable um however though um it is up to us to learn enough so perhaps maybe our free will is also in the idea that yeah you can learn and you know or you can consider a different idea that's one that's not in your comfort zone all of those things um you know, I don't know. It's just one of those issues that it's kind of like, OK, um, here's the thing. Every time some, you know, like crackpot, you know, like comes out and says, you know, like, oh, well, you know, like circumcising, you know, young Jewish boys is like, you know, basically like forcing Jewish identity on them and everything. Like, well, guess what? How many people have choices in anything? That said, um you know, it's not like, okay, so why even be born at all? Why why live at all? Or to get extreme existentialists on everyone. Why not just, okay, Do I can I say this? The extreme existentialist point? Why not just wake up and kill yourself this morning? I mean, after all though, like, I mean, this is the extreme existentialist. Your important decision for the day is to not commit suicide. So, I mean, you could conceivably say, hey, you know what? Since I don't have any choices over anything, why don't I just go ahead and just kill myself? I mean, you know, I'm, okay, sorry. <laughs> you took me on an interesting day, so I'm going to shut up now.
0: Okay, Aglaya, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate your point here because I, I mean, for me, one of the things that pulls me into Jewish values the most is exactly what you said, yeah. that we are free, we are responsible, and we can learn and we can do Teshuvah, we can grow, that we can we can advance our character, we can expand our empathy, we can make real, really robust moral choices each day out of our comfort zone, right? And I don't wanna be, and even though there's so much of our lives that are determined, we were born um, in a certain situation, into a certain reality, And a lot of that, the way we were born and and when we were born and where, we just can't change that. But we can change our relationship to it. And we can change by continuing to learn and evolve as people. And I don't want to be in, and so that determined, those determined parts are very real. But I think at the center of what our moral and spiritual enterprise ought to be is a commitment to our own freedom. Um, And, and the learning and growth that comes with that. So thank you so much. I appreciate what you said a
3: lot. I'm going to kind of change the perspective, I think, but uh, looking at it from James's life, period of living, um, he was dealing at a time as a, I think, a New Yorker, um, a Christian, and during the Civil War, which, of course... Had slavery as one of the issues, along with freedom and you know, things like that. And I understand that two of his siblings were a part of the Civil War, but William James was not. Mm. From your perspective, if you were to put yourself into his shoes, what's the rationale of doing versus? observing, I guess, slavery, freedom, the civil war, the killing. And by the way, the, the civil war was Christians against Christians. So there's no necessarily religious aspect uh, of that.
0: Yeah, that's a great um that's a great insight Ed um on what it means to be living in that time period and um and one that um you know, it's funny. I mean, people just people often you often hear people say in America today, we've never been so polarized. We're so polarized in America today. Like, oh, really? Never been so polarized. There's a thing called the Civil War. We were pretty darn polarized in the Civil War. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like hilarious to think about. You know, but I mean, let me be clear. Like, like as a Jew right now living during the Israel Gaza war, I want to be clear in my view that I think it's a good versus evil. Now let me be clear I'm not calling Palestinians evil most certainly Palestinian civilians I don't want I don't want their deaths I think Hamas is a terror regime is an, is an evil enterprise that has to be taken down and so too um in the civil war I think the enterprise of upholding slavery is evil that had to be taken down that that, that terror um the terror of slave owners and the slave establishment and the terror of a terror network that oppresses its population and and kills innocent civilians indiscriminately are evils to be taken down. And I think there's so much gray area and nuance when you get into deep conflicts. But I think within that gray area, we can't lose the black and whites also around who values human dignity and who does not. And what are we ultimately fighting for here? And for James in that time period, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an, you know, one of the incredible things, Dara Horn, Dara, We had Dara Horn at VBM not long ago. She wrote a book called People Love Dead Jews. And I did an interview with her, which you can watch, that talks about Jews living in the South and Jews living in the North during the Civil War, something she studied. And she said, even though what was going on, Jews in the South who were by and large slave owners and Jews in the North who were by and large abolitionists or uh, opposed to slavery, went and spent Pesach together. They went to each other's Passover tables there was something about being Jewish that transcended the ideas of being a Northerner and Southerner in a way that as a Christian might not have happened. If I'm a Christian Southerner versus a Northern Southerner, you know, we go to very different churches and we're enemies to some degree. Of course, there's exceptions to that, but by and large, thank you for sharing that, Alex. Um, that's awesome. And, um, and so James's relationship to his family at the time and to his communities is a fascinating thing. He's not the same as Thoreau and how throw came out on this um but how does how do you approach that relativism within a time period like that that goes back to Arnie's point earlier like how do you embrace the usefulness during a time like that and um that leaves me with a lot of question marks so ed yeah thanks for raising that and what i could say is to be continued i mean what a great what a great study i mean i mean civil war history is is already so fascinating who said what and why and Unfortunately, you can find some rabbinic sermons that use Torah to justify slavery. It's just hideous to think that could be done, and those who use Torah as a call for abolition, as the Torah does, you know, in the Jubilee year and the like. So, anyways, okay, Gary, over to you.
1: I, I just would like to comment on 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 your comment with with evil, good, and evil. Uh, I just had a discussion with my son the other day. Uh, Mentioned much like you did, one of the issues today is social media and uh, uh, journalism and blah, 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 blah. And depending on what station you listen to or what have you. Uh, but here, in and just use the Civil War, we didn't have social media. We didn't have radio. I mean, we didn't have TV. But yet people found a way to justify their evilness. Uh, without being bombarded with with social media there were still forms of communication that people decided to read or not to read and if we go back in history if you just look at the Crusades it's the same thing they you know they didn't have anything you know uh, but yet they found a way to justify their evil uh, rather rather than their good right and that was my comment
0: yeah you know and one of the one of the pressing questions that emerges with human freedom and human responsibility right now, Again, we only have two minutes, but you know, looking at this war right now, I would say among um, Jewish commentators, there's largely two views, um, although there's so many. One view is the traumas and fear that emerge in self-defense. You have a bit of a license to not make your number one priority. Um, the welfare of the the other side. That is to say that if you fear that the, the terrorist network of Hamas, as they make clear, their goal is to eradicate the entire Jewish people from the earth. It's not just, oh, we want Palestinian rights. We want a little more land. No, no, we want Israel destroyed and all Jews dead. And so one view is you can kill innocent civilians if you need to in order to stop that threat from killing all of your people. That's one view that's out there that yes killing innocent civilians is bad but you can do that if that is un, un sadly necessary in taking down a terror network that keeps your people alive that's one view we we hear today the other view is and and this is more this is more fringe certainly within the israeli even the israeli human rights group but 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 um essentially you have to take every possible moral precaution to protect innocent civilians while you're also trying to achieve your goal. Those are dual goals at the same on the same level you know, protecting yourself and protecting innocent civilians on the other side. And that's a test for our humanity right now. How For those of us who are sitting a very comfortable life, our moral predicaments are very small. It's very easy to be pure, right in our commentary. But when you're in the throes of trauma, when you're in the throes of rockets being shot at you, when you're in the throes of the whole country being called up from the reserves and being potentially wiped out, the question is: is my number one goal to be as moral as possible, or to or to survive? And it's very sad to have to make that choice. Do I want to survive or you? If someone's attacking you in the street and you don't know if they're going to kill you or not, do you just give them a soft hit to defend yourself, hoping they're not going to hit you harder, or do you hit hard, hard enough you're going to escape? And that's and many of us are have had privileged enough lives that we haven't had to wrestle with such things. But that's a real predicament. How do you keep your humanity intact when you're operating in a place of of that level of trauma and fear? So friends, I'm sorry to end on a sad note, but these are intense times. William James was supposed to be an uplifter around the power of experience. And I do close with that bracha, that blessing to everybody that um, amidst all of the darkness of the world and the sadness of reality and the conflicts and the hate and the war—I mean, these things that just don't go away. As we pray for peace, we pray for human solidarity, we pray for human connection beyond our 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 tribes and our races. And um, at the same time, um, as we wrestle with all the messiness of that of of those pains and traumas, that we continue to find positive, meaningful experiences in our lives, spaces that are spiritually uplifting, morally uh, renewing, um, connecting between humans and continue to fill us with joy and connection. At VBM, we want to be thought-provoking. We want to address the darkness. But we also want to be a place of joy and connection. And we hope we strike that balance well, of, of being honest and creating honest spaces, but also of, um, of celebrating the joy of our freedom, celebrating the joy of our potentiality. Have a beautiful day. Can't wait to see you all next week.